Okay, so today I'm going to talk about Middleton's play, The Revenger's Tragedy. So far in this series, I've discussed a tragedy of revenge, kid Spanish tragedy, a tragedy of domestic life in Arden of Faversham, an escapist comedy in The Shoemaker's Holiday, and now this week, well, a revenge tragedy named for revenge, so clearly referencing that genre in its title, but which addresses the key question of women's sexuality, which is so crucial to domestic tragedy, and which is structured around the intrigue plot, which, as I'm going to go on to say, is more a plot related to comedy than to tragedy. So I'm going to start, as usual, by outlining what happens in this play, and then try and make sense of its rather mordant tone of black camp, what to do with its protagonist, who knows, in some ways, that he is in a play, and what to do about its moral and ethical evasiveness. So, firstly, the plot. We begin the play by being introduced to Vindice, Vindice, who has been long absent from the play world and is still mourning the death of his beloved betrothed, Gloriana, some nine years before. Gloriana died because she would not submit to the sexual advances of the Duke. The Duke, his sons, his wife, his stepsons and his bastard are a nest of luxurious self-interested decadence. The Duchess is having an affair with her husband's bastard, who is named Spurio. Her own youngest son is utterly unrepentant at having raped the wife of Lord Antonio. The Duke's heir... Lucurioso employs pimps and prostitutes and lusts after Vindici's chaste sister Castiza. The Duke himself is sexually insatiable and corrupt. There's almost no politics actually in this play apart from sexual politics. I mean, there's no, there's no sense in which the Duke does anything by being a Duke apart from sleep with people or not sleep with people. Vindice with the help of his brother Hippolito, who works for the court, insinuates himself into Lasurioso's service. So Lasurioso is the Duke's heir. Insinuates himself into Lasurioso's service in the guise of Piato, a figure called Piato. So he spends much of the play in disguise as Piato. And he promises to win over Castiza, who is his own sister, for his new master. Castiza and Vindici's mother... Graziano don't recognise Vindici because he's been away so long, but they're in any case divided about what to do about the proposal. Castiza, the sister, is adamant about preserving her chastity. Her mother is more pro- pragmatic and conscious of the advantages of the duels brought on behalf of Lucurioso. Uh, her husband has died sometime previously. There's a suggestion that the father's death is somehow also attributable to the duke. Vindici prompts Lucurioso to think that the Duchess, that he will catch the Duchess having sex with Spurio. And he stirs Lucurioso into rushing into the bedroom to murder them in the act. In fact, the Duchess is, is actually in bed with her own husband, rather rarely, we think, for the play, but bad luck for Lucurioso. The Duchess is in bed with her own husband, who has his son and heir arrested for treason, thinks Lucurioso is running in to try and kill him and take over the dukedom. Meanwhile, the Duke approaches Vindice to see if he can procure for the Duke a woman. 
Vindici crafts a clever plan to lure the Duke with the promise of a virgin. In fact, this virgin is the skull of Gloriana put on a stick uh, and covered with clothes to simulate a body with her lips covered in poison. The Duke goes along with this, embraces this uh, grotesque creature uh, and is felled in a, a sort of poisoned haze and then stabbed by the vengeful Vindice. Lucurioso is in prison for having apparently tried to murder the Duke. So too is the youngest son of the Duchess, who has raped an unknown woman, an unnamed woman, sorry, who is the wife of Antonio. Uh, she commits suicide after being raped. The other stepsons, who are wonderfully named Supervacuo and Ambicioso, so Supervacuo and Ambicioso plot to have Lucurioso executed in prison. They're going to get rid of the, king, the Duke's heir. Uh, and therefore be closer to power themselves. And they plan to spring their younger brother from jail. But of course it goes wrong, and the younger brother is executed while Lucurioso is in fact released. On his father's death, having been killed by Vindici, Lucurioso then takes up the dukedom, but he's murdered by Vindici and Hippolyto during a mask to celebrate his coronation. The two brothers squabble over the succession and kill each other in rapid succession, leaving the dukedom in the hands of Antonio. At the very last minute of the play, Vindici lets slip that he and Hippolito have been responsible for all these deaths. He expects approval, or at least clemency, from the new Duke Antonio. But Antonio sentences them to death. Now, as you can see, that plot synopsis is quite heavy. There's a lot of plot. There's too much plot. And one way of thinking about this fact, that there's too much plot to give a synopsis of the play very easily, is to try to make the link with comedy. Tragedies tend to have more streamlined plots, or less plot, you know, fewer things happening. Comedies tend to enjoy a multiplication of characters, disguises and trickeries. I mean, you could partly think about the way tragedy tends to be uh, we think of tragedy ten tending to be moving towards the isolation of a single figure on the stage, getting rid of other people, moving towards uh, a kind of solitude, whereas comedies tend to end with a big scene at the end where everybody's on stage. There's a sense of lots of, lots of people, uh, of a social world. Intrigue comedy, intrigue comedy, a kind of comedy in which Middleton excels, is in particular built on complications, ironies, and ultimately revelations. In intrigue comedy, typically a wily bravura trickster figure takes on the role of master of ceremonies, directing diversions and deceits in order to get what they want. I talked last week about the way Decker's play The Shoemaker's Holiday anticipates in a more benign form the rapacity and energy of the city comedies of the early 17th century. Decker's play, you remember, dates from 1599, just before that vogue for sharp satirical comedies set in London really began. Middleton's play, dating from 1606, 1606, is right there in the thick of those city comedy plays. In 1605, we have Decker's The Honest... The, the, Honest, no, the honest, that's the word, isn't it? The honest whore, I didn't realise that was so difficult to say. Decker's play, The Honest Whore, the collaborative play Eastwood Ho and Northwood Ho, and Middleton's play Michaelmas Term. In 1606, Middleton writes 
A Mad World, My Masters, and Johnson writes Volpone. All of these are really good sort of contextual plays to think about alongside Revenge's Tragedy. And in lots of ways, they're much better plays to think about alongside this one than other revenge plays like The Spanish Tragedy. So we, t we tend to, to group those plays according to genre. I think it's much more useful, and I'll say a bit more about this, to try and think about them according to date. Situating Revenge tra Revenger's tragedy back into this theatrical context amplifies the play's structural connections with comedy. Like Johnson's play Volpone, for example, we have at the centre of Middleton's play an energetic, scheming, amoral agent whose own ethical failings are mitigated by the fact that his world is so evidently corrupt. We can't, that's to say, really take the moral high ground uh, against Volpone or Vindice for what they do because their victims are, for the most part, so deserving of their fates. Okay, so they're bad amoral characters, amoral perhaps rather than bad, they're amoral characters working in a world uh, where most people deserve, seem to deserve what they get. So if Vindice manages events like a comic protagonist, and by that I think I mean something like plotting rather than reflecting, active, not brooding, working through dialogue, not soliloquy. So if he manages events like a comic protagonist, there are other ways too in which this play, by a playwright who up till now has written almost entirely comedies, has its affinities with comedy rather than tragedy. And perhaps most prominent of these is the issue of the play's tone. The tone of the Revenge's tragedy has long been a critical talking point. The play undercuts moral sententiae with a radical and perverse black comedy. Uh, it's, part of its wit is through uh, a kind of banality, a, a, a kind of phrasing which doesn't meet the extraordinariness of the action uh, it's commenting on. Whose head's that then? The brothers ask Lucurioso, when whom they thought had been killed in prison, uh, but, but, it, but walks on the stage. The bag they're holding with their brother's head in suddenly weighs rather heavy. Old dad dead, asks Spurio, in a line which uh, you know, hardly seems like a line from, uh, from the 17th century at all. Old dad dead, uh, for example. Stab, when he stabs Lucurioso to death, Vindici warns him reprovingly, tell nobody. Amid death and violence, then, there's a sort of Tarantino-type attention to the perverse pleasures of violence, the comedy of the grotesque. A recent production in 2008 at the Royal Exchange in Manchester really played up this tonal discrepancy. Having murdered the Duke, for example, in this production, Vindici and Hippolito need to plant his body dressed as Piatto on the throne. This is a nice kink in the plot, and in fact, kinky is quite a good word for the plot generally, uh, but I'll come back to why they want to do that in a minute. But what they're doing is whirling in this production, whirl the Duke's body around the stage like a sort of demented Morecambe and Wise, uh, a sort of vaudeville sketch to the tune of The Sun Has Got His Hat On, played with an appropriate gusto from the musician's gallery. So the production is trying to play up the ways the play is dissociative, uh, tonally challenging, the way it juxtaposes 
um, a light-hearted, cheerful music with uh, terrible macabre or, or, or amoral actions. As many critics have noted, the tone of black comedy or camp is one of Middleton's most challenging aspects. It's as if he imports a kind of aesthetic decadence or depravity as a vehicle for the play's depiction of moral corruption. And that's a moral corruption against which Vindici tries to assert himself, but in which he is ultimately himself enmeshed. To press a bit more on what that term camp might mean here, I'm going to use some remarks by Susan Sontag from a great essay, uh, a really stimulating essay, which I recommend to you if you don't know it already. It's an essay called Notes on Camp, Notes on Camp, which is first published in book form in her collection Against Interpretation, but there are online texts of it available if you Google them. So sometimes it's time to think about an aesthetic she calls camp. What, what does that aesthetic mean? The essence of camp, she says, the essence of camp is its love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. The essence of camp is its love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. And that notion of unnaturalness through exaggeration, a quality we might call over-the-topness, is really important to Revenge's tragedy. Sontag goes on, Camp is art that proposes itself seriously, but cannot be taken altogether seriously because it is too much. So camp has the quality of too much. Uh, camp is art that proposes itself seriously, but cannot be taken altogether seriously because it is too much. We can see in the play's final scene in which Lucurioso's murder is followed by the deaths of first Supervacuo, then Ambicioso, then Spurio, each at the end of each of the next three lines. So, you know, bang, 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 in a, in a, in a, in a moment. We could see this as a sort of structural expression of an aesthetic of exaggeration and excess. That's a sort of moment in the play where exaggeration and excess seem useful categories to think about. If you'd prefer a historical analogy to what Sontag is trying to address in a 20th century reading of what she is calling camp, you might want to look at mannerism. Mannerism. Mannerism is an art form of 16th century Italy, particularly exemplified by Michelangelo, a style which stresses artificiality, collapsed perspectives, distorted poses and non-naturalistic settings. So it stresses artificiality, collapsed perspectives, distorted poses and non-naturalistic settings in contrast to a stress on harmony and balance which was the keynote of earlier Renaissance art. So camp, I'm trying to say, and mannerism, the 16th century uh, movement of mannerism are possibly analogous frameworks for thinking about the aesthetic of the play. One important feature of that play is its meta-theatricality. We saw that in the Spanish tragedy, Kidd brings that play to a conclusion through a play within a play, a commentary on the form of the theatre and on its simultaneous pretense and effectiveness. The Revengers tragedy returns to the genre of revenge tragedy when it is already looking dated and reinvigorates it through a self-conscious enjoyment of its aesthetic norms. Okay, so Revengers tragedy is a bit like uh, 
watching Hammer horror films now or something. They may, they may have had a particular meaning at the time, but now they are over-the-top, comic, creaky. The pleasure we get from them is a, is a camp pleasure. It's different, perhaps, from the pleasure uh, of their original production. Revenge, I think that's somehow what Revenge's Tragedy is doing with uh, the Spanish tragedy and those kinds of ways of, of, of theatre. Sontag is useful again here. Camp sees everything in quotation marks. It's a great idea of uh, sort of pinpoint what she thinks camp is. Camp sees everything in quotation marks. It's not a lamp, but a lamp in quotation marks. That's a great thing that if you haven't bothered to come to the lecture, you'll never get because you can't see my gesture. It's not lamp, but a lamp. Not woman, but a woman. To perceive camp in objects and persons is to understand being as playing a role, being as playing a role. And that's something that just about all the characters in the, in the plays uh, I've been looking at so far this term uh, seem to understand, that being is playing a role. That may be uh, sort of maybe the, the keynote, perhaps, of Elizabethan culture more generally. So to perceive ob camp in objects and persons is to understand being as playing a role. It is the furthest extension of the metaphor of life as theatre. So we know that metaphor, life as, as theatre, uh, is a really important uh, and current one uh, for the Elizabethan and Jacobean uh, imagination. So it's worth thinking about camp as the furthest extension of the metaphor of life as theatre. Part of why the Revenge's tragedy is so camp is its understanding of its own metatheatricality. When the bad bleeds, then is the tragedy good, says Vindici. When the bad bleeds, then is the tragedy good. He seems to be giving a commentary on the form of tragedy, which looks, uh, which speaks to a sort of moralised aesthetics that we might expect, but actually undermines that pious message. We don't tend to think of tragedy as being a form in which the bad bleed. When the bad bleeds, then is the tragedy good. Is there no thunder left? Vindici apostrophises at a point in his plotting. Is there no thunder left? And it's not clear who he's addressing there, a higher power who may either be the gods or the stagehands, for a clap of thunder is indeed delivered on cue. Vindici knows that his role is, in Sontag's terms, being as playing a role, being as playing a role. And his is a role in which his name, Vindici, revenge, has trapped him accompanied here by the hammy stage prop of thunder. When thunder claps, says Vindici, heaven likes the tragedy. When thunder claps, heaven likes the tragedy. It's perhaps not surprising that the modern writer with whom Revenge's tragedy is most often associated is that master of moral and, and sexual perversion and black comedy, the 20th century playwright Joe Orton. And indeed, Orton uses an epigraph from Revenger's Tragedy in his play What the Butler Saw of 1969. The epigraph is, Surely we are all mad people, and they whom we think are, are not. Like Orton, Revenger's Tragedy is in performance extreme and, and disturbingly funny, and I'd recommend in particular looking at the reviews of the two 2008 productions at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, which I already quoted, uh, and at the National Theatre in London. And also, if you haven't already, looking at the 2002 film by the punk chronicler filmmaker Alex Cox, which stars Derek Jacobi, Eddie Izzard and Christopher Eccleston.
All these productions update the location and see Middleton's tragedy amid the depravity and corruption of a modern urban world. Cox's film creates a dystopic, post-apocalyptic Liverpool as a cross between Soho and late Imperial Rome. The two stage productions of last year each imagined a modern setting, complete with our own signifiers of overconsumption, metal briefcases full of money, verve clico necked from the bottle, thumping heavy metal soundtracks. It's very rare to see a Jacobean play with a modern stage history, so I particularly would recommend that you try and look up those reviews as you work on the play. The depraved court world of Revenge's tragedy is not given a physical location. It seems to echo the Italianate locations of Jacobean tragedies by Webster uh, and Marston, but it's never, its place is never named. There are no politics and no religion in the play to help identify its placing in the real world. And in this, it's quite distinct from the other plays we've looked at in this series. The names of its characters from Vindici or Revenge to Spurio, Spurious or Illegitimate, Castiza, Chastity, and so on, all suggest the walking abstractions of the morality play rather than the flesh and blood psychologies we might want to associate with contemporary Shakespearean tragedies. Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth, for example, are both in the same year as the Revenger's tragedy. Like Ben Jonson's plays of the humours, that is to say, the Revenger's tragedy is less interested in the inner thoughts of its protagonists, very little soliloquy, very little revelation uh, of, of, an, of an inner self, and much more interested in their interactions uh, in, in the play uh, and through play. This is a savage fable rather than a mirror up to nature. But most critics have felt that in some way this play registers the swift disappointment with the Jacobean court, with the accession of James in 1603, which had promised uh, so much uh, kind of refreshment and renewal of uh, political uh, and national life. Disappointment with the Jacobean court's structures of conspicuous consumption and allegations of sexual laxity come pretty early uh, in 1605-6, and thus Therefore, the play can be seen to be a topical one. Last week, I talked extensively about the background to the shoemaker's holiday, that atmosphere of lack and scarcity and pessimism, so as to try and situate its brand of feel-good comedy. And I'm not actually proposing to do at length the same now for The Revenger's Tragedy. But the general point still stands. We need to be reminded that plays were written and performed over a relatively short period, they're new plays created by and consumed within particular historical circumstances and quite close circumstances of, of weeks or months, uh, not years as we might expect for artistic projects now. These plays then have a topicality and immediacy which we need to work to retrieve now, given how used we are to long theatre runs and to revivals of classic plays rather than new work. The play's disguised and exaggerated relation to perceived Jacobean aristocratic immorality may betray its author's puritanism. That moral outrage that is troublingly coexistent throughout Middleton's work with a real delight in the texture of decadence. 
So moral outrage coexistent always with the sort of delight in what's being uh, what, what's being shown. Vindici is a revenger not just for himself and his own private quest. He kills the Duke with that poisoned puppet of Gloriana about halfway through the play, at which point he has taken an eye for an eye, poisoning the Duke in his lust, just as the Duke poisoned Gloriana in her chastity. The name of Gloriana seems highly significant, a name associated, indelibly associated, I think, with the idealised virginity of Queen Elizabeth, uh, as given in Spencer's Fairy Queen. So this name is given to the dead virgin of Vindici's imagination. I don't think the play's Gloriana should be read straightforwardly as Elizabeth, but that resonant name gives the play's sense of loss and decline a more specifically political cast. What must be revenged but remains lost forever, is less a private individual than a time, a history, an irretrievable alternative to the present. And in this, Vindici's private or personal revenge quest gathers to itself some of the reverberations of public history. Even after the killing of the Duke, then, Vindici is not satisfied. Many reviewers of the 2008 production at the National Theatre noted that as Vindice stabbed the Duke in an orgy of violence, a pale wraith rose from the discarded remnants of Gloriana's pretense, very arrestingly, since we'd seen these as a sort of crumpled uh, bundle of cloth on the stage, not a person. Uh, so this uh, a pale sort of spirit rose up from this crumpled material and exited as if to suggest that the revenge was over, that something had been released, that someone had been laid to rest. But both in the production and in the play, Vindici does not notice. He doesn't seem to notice that he's done what he set out to do. Having got the taste for revenge, he sets himself up as the court's moral scourge, an agent of judgment rather than private vengeance, a kind of frightening moral fundamentalist targeting his disgust at the world on women in particular. Middleton has often been accused of misogyny, although the play has also been dubbed a feminist Hamlet. I'm going to talk more about the resonances of Hamlet in a minute. Middleton has often been accused of misogyny. And certainly the world of the Revenger's tragedy is one in which the most available signifier of moral corruption is women's sexuality. That's both the symbol and the, um, uh, and the tenor, maybe, the vehicle and the tenor uh, of corruption. The Duchess and her progeny, the bastard son who attests to his own absent mother's infidelity. I think bastards in, uh, bastard characters in drama are always usually part of plots which are worried about women's chastity and about succession and uh, uh, fathers knowing their own children and so on and I think the same is true here in Revenge's Tragedy. So the Duchess and her progeny, the bastard son who attest to his own mother's infidelity, are indices of the play's attitudes to women and to sex. But more troubling I think than these figures are their parallels uh, in the more sort of morally orthodox family of Vindici. Parallel scenes often accentuate the connections between the two households. 
Act 4, Scene 3, for example, begins with the stage direction. Middleton's really, really good at stage direction, so um, uh, if you're looking at him in the Oxford Shakespeare uh, or, or on Ebo, say, uh, you probably really enjoy them. 4.3. Enter the Duchess arm in arm with the bastard. He seemeth lasciviously to her. It's a very nice sort of stage direction indicative of, uh, of obviously, the piece of action. After the mentor supervacuo running with a rapier, his brother stops him. Okay, so we've got the, mo- the mother um, in this compromising, uh, lascivious situation with the bastard and the sons coming in with a knife. The next scene, Act 4, Scene 4, begins with a parallel stage direction. Enter Vindice and Hippolito bringing out their mother one by one shoulder and the other by the other with daggers in their hands. That both mothers, who have very different sort of moral characters in the play, should be threatened with knives by their sons, you know, in in, uh, subsequent scenes, tells us something, uh, I think, about how the play uh, figures its female characters. The National Theatre's 2008 production emphasised that the most important driver in the play's action is sex. Um, the, the Royal Exchange Manchester production of the same year, which I also saw, I, I think um, suggested that the most important thing in the play is death. That play uh, had a, um, at the, ed- the edge of the stage was a kind of crumbling away and you could see skulls and bones as if the whole of the, uh, of the action was taking place on top of a kind of charnel house um, and death and the reminder of death was really, really important to that Manchester production. But sex was the most important thing in the National Theatre. It also wanted to make clear the class or status difference between the family of Vindici and the family of Lasurioso. So Castiza and Graziana, Vindici's sister and mother, dressed in worn clothes, live in a small drab house with a two-bar electric fire. Lazurio says bachelor pad is decked uh, instead with red leather furniture and decorative call girls. But the play undermines a sentimental idea that virtue will be found in the humble dwelling compared with playboy vices. Instead, Graziana, Vindici's mother, is alert to the economic necessities of pimping her daughter. And Vindici plays a key role in this misogynistic humiliation he works hard to present Lucurioso's suit, tempting both his sister and his mother, and then acidly berating them when, in particular, Graziana shows signs of capitulating. Vindici sets up a, his, his mother for a test. He seems almost to want her to fail. "'Tis impossible," Vindici tells his employer, "'that a mother by any gifts should become a board to her own daughter." So a kind of moral truism that mothers wouldn't do this. And Lazurioso answers worldlily, "'Nay then, I see thou art but a puny in the subtle mystery of a woman.'" Vindici is a bit of a puny in this subtle mystery. He's out of his depth in the depravity of Lazurioso's world view. The list of sexual wickedness with which Vindici tries to impress his new master tails off rather. We kind of sense that Vindici can't really keep up this catalogue of awfulness, even though he tries to make out he knows everything. Thou knowest in the world strange lust, 
asks La Sirioso. It's a kind of interview question to see whether he wants to take Vindici on. Oh, Dutch lust, fulsome lust, replies Vindici. Drunken procreation which begets so many drunkards. Some father dreads not gone to bed in wine to slide from the mother and cling to the daughter-in-law. Some uncles are adulterous with their nieces, brothers with brothers' wives. Oh, hour of incest. Vindici is trying to make out he's seen it all, but there is something amateurish, I think, about a peroration on incest which reaches a climax with brothers with brothers' wives, surely than what we're expecting, which is brothers with sisters, which really is, that is really quite bad and would have seemed quite bad uh, in, in, in the period also. Vindici isn't really, uh, he's trying hard to rack his imagination for the terrible things, but he kind of falls a bit short, I think. But there is time for Vindici to catch up with the ruling atmosphere of degeneracy in the play. And in his dealings with his mother, Vindici brings her to acting as a board for his sister and himself takes on the role of pimp or go-between. The events of the play bear, bear out Lucurioso's easy, worldly sexism that mothers will indeed pimp their daughters. And even though Castiza preserves her own chastity, she too is compromised by the grubby machinations of the sexualized world around her. There's a kind of uh, uh, measure-for-measure uh, kind of parallel, maybe. Like Antonio's violated and suicidal wife, who significantly is never named in the play nor appears on stage, but... Uh, but is like the dead Gloriana, a powerful symbol for the impossibility of being a woman in this play, Castiza shows that uh, women who preserve their chastity and women uh, who uh, commodify it are, are, are all treated badly. Gloriana's death, for example, is attributed to her chastity. She dies rather than give in to what the Duke wants. But in Vindici's vengeful plot... She becomes the ultimate creature of male sexual fears, the woman whose kiss is death, the murdering vagina dentata. She becomes a parodic version of how terrible women it is to have sex with women, ironically given that that's what she uh, most uh, shied away from in life. When Vindici and Hippolito are condemned to death at the end of the play, there is no suggestion of what will happen to the women back home, whose economic needs, the play makes clear, scarcely allow them the luxury of sexual morality or agency. In this play, being good is as fatal for women as being bad, since there is neither moral reward nor punishment. Even when Graziana repents her eagerness to accept the payment for her daughter, her son forgives her in distinctly misogynistic terms. Honest women are so seldom rare, tis good to cherish those poor few there are. The play's ambivalence to issues of morality is particularly, I think, located in Vindici himself. In the end, Vindici is brought to a kind of justice, but he's condemned by his own talk, by his own boasting of what he's done, a comic braggart, rather than being subject to legal justice. Antonio is one of the figures we get a lot at the end of Jacobean tragedies. Uh, I'm thinking maybe about the end of Webster's play The White Devil, or of Ford's play Tis Pity She's a Whore. A kind of deus ex machina figure from classical drama. The deus ex machina is, as you know, someone who has not really been involved in the play. In classical plays, it's the gods who come in and, and sort everything out. 
Um, but in, in these secular plays, it's a character who's hardly been involved in the play up till now, who therefore can have some possibility of a fresh start about them, someone who'll come in and sort out uh, what's been going wrong. But Antonio's anonymity and even his survival in a play uh, in which uh, most characters die seems rather to open him to suspicion. Antonio's final lines stress his self-interest, his interest in power, rather than any morally inflected system of justice. You that would murder him, i.e. the old duke, would murder me. You that would murder him would murder me. Vindici has effected his purge of the corrupt court, but it is not clear that the play contains any real alternative to its mode of operations, or that Antonio represents a new ethical start. Alex Cox's film suggests that Antonio is a cynical political operator who gains popular sympathy through his beautiful younger wife's Diana-type death, not that he is a decent man who has power thrust upon him. The ending of the play then sees Vindici caught in a trap of his own making, betrayed by his own exuberance. Again, the parallel with Johnson's Volpone of the same year is an interesting one. Like Volpone, Vindici is incarcerated at the end of the play. In Volpone, an epilogue makes us wonder whether he is indeed beaten, and certainly his enemies have nothing of the verve and energy of Volpone himself. As I've said before in these lectures, moral judgment in these plays, moral judgment in both comedy and tragedy, is always synonymous with dramatic closure. To judge is to end the play, to close down the entertainment, to dissolve the fiction, and to send everyone home from the theatre. And thus moral judgment is always cast with regret. We might want to compare that with Frank Commode's important critical idea in the sense of an ending, the sense of an ending, that narrative endings are both desired and feared as versions of death. So moral judgment is in these plays cast with regret at the ending of the theatrical fiction as well as with ethical necessity. Vindici condemns himself in the play's closing moments And this may fulfil the ambivalence about himself and his own conduct with which he behaves throughout the play. In one of the play's most baroque plot twists, Lucurioso recruits the undisguised Vindice to kill his alter ego, Piatto. So Lucurioso is being... um, Lucurioso is, is asking Vindice to kill Vindice's own disguised self. He doesn't obviously know that they're the same person. Vindici does this by disguising the Duke's corpse in the clothes of Piatto and then stabbing him again for dramatic effect before Lucurioso. As Vindici and Hippolito prepare this charade, Vindici's delight at the paradox is gleeful. I must kill myself. Brother, that's I, and I must stand ready here to make away myself yonder. I must sit to be killed and stand to kill myself. I must sit to be killed and stand to kill myself. That this suicidal attack, Vindici has to kill himself, is symbolically appropriate, is clear. Vindici's revenge quest, maybe Vindici's name, assures his own destruction. 
revengers in all the plays before him pay with their lives. Middleton's play is less concerned, I think, with personhood and with subjectivity than I've suggested uh, is a concern of the previous plays we've been discussing. Part of that camp aesthetic is that it is concerned with extravagant exteriors, with making its dramatic points through overemphasis rather than naturalism, with a cast list of wolfishly cartoonish characters. We want to see Revenge's Tragedy as a, as a graphic novel by the illustrators of The Watchman, dark, bleak and biting, a challenge to, rather than homage to, the kind of psychological investigation Shakespeare is undertaking at the same time. I'm just going to use this last few minutes of the lecture to address re the Revenge's Tragedy's relation to Hamlet. Uh, so thinking about a Hamlet dating from uh, the turn of the 17th century, 1599-1600, first published 1603, uh, in 1603, 1604, and in 1606 including that collaboration on Time of Athens and work on Macbeth and later on Measure for Measure. So, the revenge tragedy, Revenger's tragedy begins with Vindici addressing the skull of Gloriana, recapping one of Hamlet's most iconic moments as he addresses the skull of Yorick. Hippolyto's dismissive remark when he comes across um, Vindici uh, talking to the skull Still sighing over death's visard, still sighing over death's visard, may encourage us to, us to see the Revenger's tragedy's relation to Hamlet as debunking rather than reverential. In some sense, it's Vindice, not Middleton, who venerates his tragic predecessor. Other parallels between the plays include the combative, bitter relation of the protagonist to the mother figure. Both plays routine misogyny, both in their representation of female characters, but more especially in their language and their imagery. Both plays represent a court corrupted by lust and a prevailing nostalgia for previous and better times. Like Hamlet, Vindice is the isolated anti-hero, set at odds to the prevailing climate, repelled by sex and intimacy, ultimately careless of his own life. But Middleton's tone is, I think, different from Hamlet's. This might be explained by the movement of the genre of revenge tragedy in the theatre of the 16th and 17th centuries. All genres undergo periods of experimentation, of establishment and consolidation, and then of parody in order to renew and refresh themselves. So they go from experimentation establishment and consolidation through to parody. And in some ways, Middleton's play seems a parody, a camp return to the territory covered in high seriousness by Kidd 
and by Shakespeare, remember Sontag saying, camp is something which presents itself as serious but is too much to be so. For Middleton and for Vindici, such moral seriousness is no longer sustainable. Vindici recognises his own implication in depraved cycles of violence and lust, which can no longer pretend to any ethical high ground, but which are also now clearly established as morally and aesthetically excessive. Something similar, I think, happens to the references to kids' Spanish tragedy. There's a really nice parallel to explore between parodic citations of the old play, the Spanish tragedy, and the mordant humour of Middleton's take on that genre more than 15 years after Hieronimo first stalked the boards. I think sometimes from our historical distance, we minimise the sense in which early modern plays became quickly outdated or over-familiar like, say, early television or CGI cinema or the internet or any one of a number of analogous modern technologies, the Renaissance theatre was energetic, omnivorous and changing really, really quickly. And that's why sometimes looking, as I said already, at plays from the same year rather than trying to trace a long generic history can give us a more stimulating sample of early modern culture its tastes and its preoccupations. Next week I'm sticking with Middleton. I had thought of talking about A Mad World, my masters, but I think in fact I've decided to lecture on his collaboration with Decker on The Roaring Girl. Uh, If you're interested in A Mad World, my masters, I'd be very, very happy indeed to talk to you uh, about it. Uh, But next week I think I'm going to talk about Middleton Decker play The Roaring Girl, a play which is based on a notorious contemporary figure and a comedy which has enormous fun with gender norms and gender inversions. Uh, Thanks very much.